If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can make your way to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, as we continue in our series, Portraits of the Passion, we want to take and make our way, take the Scripture and make our way uh, to the Last Supper uh, this morning and create an atmosphere, um, if at all possible, by the grace of God Luke chapter 22, let's get right into it, shall we? The first nine verses, at least for now. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and greeted, or rather, and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, that would be Thursday, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will we or where where will you have us prepare it? And we'll stop there. Until just a few years ago, my wife made preparations for our entire family to come home for lunch to our house every Sunday. If you want to know what that was like, those preparations, think your Thanksgiving preparations and add 50 times to it throughout the year and you'll you'll have an idea. And we loved it. We loved it. Now, imagine preparing And being a part of the preparation, like Peter and John were, for 13 men to observe the very last Passover that was still looking forward to the coming Messiah. The very last one recognized by God. All, mind you, all centered around a lamb. Now, last week... We focused on Christ as our substitute from Isaiah 53, the one who took our place. Today, God's lamb and ours, hopefully, yours. Now, from the entrance of sin into the world, and the Bible says sin came by one man, Adam, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men because all sinned in Adam. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible says. And from the moment sin entered into the world, God has had us approach him by way of a substitute and by way of a lamb. Even there in the Garden of Eden, here is Adam and Eve, having sinned, having defied the Lord, they did what everybody does, they did what you did, what I've done, what some of you are doing right now. You find ways to cover up. You find ways to clothe yourself. You find your own righteousness, your own religion. It might even be a doctrinally sound church. You, you, you clothe yourself with that in your attempt to cover up. But God rejected those, the clothing of Eden, 
and provided, according to Genesis 3.21, skins for Adam and Eve. And there, in the very first instance in the Bible, the very first thing in the history of the world to die was that which died in the place of Adam and Eve, their substitute. In all likelihood, a lamb. Years later, when the father of our faith, Abraham, is given the desire of his heart, a son, he's a strapping teenager, and God tells him to go to Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. And if you know the story, he does all of that. He he's, ties him down. He's, he's, he's looking at his son. He's got a knife wielding over him, ready to plunge it into him. When the angel comes, stops him, tells him he doesn't have to do it. He knows his heart is loyal to God. And there in the thicket, caught by the horns, is a lamb, a substitute. And then in the dramatic passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 12, we're talking years later now, maybe 500, and the children of Israel are now in captivity, 400 plus years in Egypt. And God brings a series of devastating plagues upon the Egyptians in order to wrench his people from Egypt. Nine of them are gone. The tenth and most devastating one is the angel of death passing over every home and wiping out the firstborn in every home. Unless, of course, they had taken a lamb and then examined that lamb for four days and then killed the lamb and then shed the blood of the lamb and then put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lentil of the home. And only then, when God saw the blood, would he, what? Pass over. Oh, one more thing. One more thing. The lamb had to be consumed. Remember that. It wasn't enough that they examined the lamb that they killed the lamb, that they shed the lamb's blood, that they put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the homes. But the lamb had to be consumed. Now fast forward 1,500 years. This is the way the Jews have approached God, by way of the substitute, by way of the lamb, through the temple worship prescribed later on. And you have all the prophecies of Messiah. We've looked at several of them in the last several weeks. And along comes Jesus. His cousin is baptizing people. John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, look, there's the, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as I've said so often, this is the first Lamb these Jews had ever seen walking on two feet, automatically identifying him as a sacrifice. Three years later, after fulfilling all of the office that the office of Messiah needed to fulfill, having fulfilled all of it, Jesus is about to have his last supper. The last legitimate Passover ever, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover, the greater lamb, the greater Passover lamb is about to offer himself as a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Indeed, he would say at the point of death, it is, it's finished. Just imagine the atmosphere at that Last Supper. And that's my intention today, to bring you into that atmosphere. The atmosphere around the Last Supper. 
Now, just from what we've seen, the first thing I want you to notice, is it was a sinister atmosphere because you have the chief priest and the scribes, they're conspiring, they're intending to kill Jesus, and then they get a bonus thrown in, Judas. And then this, Luke records, you just saw it, then Satan entered Judas. It's almost as if Satan sensed this was his moment, this was his crowning achievement, the murder of the Son of God. And it's, it's almost like he wasn't going to allow a lesser demon to carry out the dastardly deed and possess Judas himself, which is what he did. Judas, who had already made his own coffin, Satan was just putting the last nail in, so to speak. Here is Judas, who, who thought he'd faked it. He, his phoniness, had, he'd gotten away with it. He, he, but he hadn't, because Jesus knows everything. And some of you are here today, you think, some of you here, you think you're getting away, you're getting away with your phoniness. You're hiding your sin. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows. Probably somebody does. And we know that God does, right? Eventually, you're going to be outed. We all have to stand before the living God. Why not come to the Lamb and get your sins dealt with? Because they were already dealt with at the cross. Repent, turn to Him. Some of you are living a sinister life. It doesn't have to be anymore. Your sins are already in the open before God. Because everything is naked and open before the eyes of Him of whom we must all give an account. Have you ever read that? A sinister atmosphere. It was also a controlled atmosphere. Let's pick it up right where we left off. They asked where we should go to prepare it. Verse 10, he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jug of water will meet you. Follow him into the house. He enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? That we may eat the Passover with the disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it, that is the Passover, there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Here's a question I have. Why, why the need for the mini miracle? I mean, you got to admit, it's pretty cool. I mean, Jesus dialed it up exactly the way it took place, Right? And, and, I mean, how would they have found this guy? I mean, it just, I mean, Jerusalem literally was swelling with people at the Passover. I think, uh, think the Des Moines, you know, farmer's market on a Saturday morning in the summer, you know, wall-to-wall -wall people. How are you going to find one individual? Well, he tells us here, he says, you're going to see a guy carrying a jug. Men didn't carry jugs of water. Women did. So he would have stood out. So that's interesting. But it doesn't really answer the question. I mean, wh why, why all the fuss? Why didn't Jesus just say something like, hey, I got a friend, his name's Jacob. He lives right up across from the sheep gate over there. Did you know it's the house? It's the one that has the big upper room. That's the one. Just go up there. Jacob knows. Talk to him and get the room. Why didn't he just do that? Why all the fuss and go over here, find the guy with the jug? He'll just... In a word, Judas. Judas would have been there when Jesus told Peter and John to go make their way and all the fuss and find the guy at the jug and get the upper room. Jesus was not about to allow his betrayer 
to ruin his last supper with his disciples. You know, by having, you know, some soldiers create a raid or something. We already know from verse 6 he's conspiring. He's looking for the opportunity to betray him. And here's the point. The whole passion account speaks of control. If you have in your mind Jesus just being taken around like a little pawn before he goes to the cross, you're not reading the Bible rightly. He is in total control, orchestrating the circumstances. No one else saw it coming. The disciples didn't. They were surprised, but not Jesus. Never surprised. Even the scene we depicted last week where, you know, Pilate puts him out in front of everyone and says, behold, the man. Look at this sickly, you know, torn, fleshed, uh, gods don't bleed. Remember that? I mean, if you read the story, then Pilate goes in and has a private audience with Jesus. What, what are you doing here? What, what's going on? Don't you know that I have, I got the power to crucify you? Jesus basically says, you're not in control here, Pilate. You're not in control. This was a controlled atmosphere, front to finish. And then, more personally, it was a family atmosphere. Look at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table. Doesn't say he pulled up a chair. And the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, I notice he says, I want to eat this Passover with you. If you read through the gospel accounts, you'll find seven meal scenes where Jesus is sitting down and eating. None like this one. This is a family affair. You didn't do Passover alone. Even read the Exodus account. They're saying if your house is too small, get somebody else, pull the neighbors in. Get the aunts and uncles over here. It was a family affair. And Peter and John were set out by Jesus, verse 8, to prepare the Passover, which means, remember, this is in Peter and John's. They're getting ready for 13 guys. They're, that means they would have had to already given the lamb that they brought over to the temple because it would have had to come under inspection for four days. That means they had gone and gotten the lamb. They had taken it to the temple precinct. It would have been slaughtered. The blood, so the blood could be put on the altar. They would have... Then they would have had to go out and purchase all the sides that you see in a typical setter or Passover meal, including the wine. They, they drank four cups of wine during this thing. I don't want you to picture them inebriated or anything like that, but because they're eating all around it. But they would have had to purchase all of those things. And then on top of it all, they would have had to roast the lamb. Peter and John were doing all this. At least the room was furnished, verse 12. And whatever you picture, get out of your mind the classic Da Vinci picture. Get that out of your mind. It was more like this. More like this. The uh, lower table, rugs, possibly pillows, one elbow against the table, the other eating. And it was a family kind of atmosphere. And I have a confession to make. Uh, we, our small group system around here, we call cell groups. We've got 1,000 people or so, maybe more, in these groups. And uh, Pastor Jason Jackson is the discipleship pastor. He's over these things. And, you know, our groups meet together once a week during the, during the week sometime. We, it's life on life. Sometimes we're going over the sermon they just heard. Sometimes we're looking through a book. Sometimes we're just swapping stories. And Jason and Meredith, they started this little 
I guess they started this before they even came here, but they brought it here and they, where, they, where they eat a meal. And my confession is this. You eat a meal every time you get together? Yeah. I said, that just sounds so silly to me. You're not really going to get into anything. You're, you're going to eat a meal by the time you get done. You're not really going to get into the meat of the word and all this. And then we served a meal. And then we went to somebody else's house, and we didn't tell them to, but they served a meal. We've been eating meals ever since. And every time we eat a meal, you know, you're entering into truth, and you come out of truth, you're talking about life, back into truth, and it's back and forth. And it's so family-like. It's so real, because that's what you do around the table. You talk, you eat, you laugh, you have fun, you speak into one another's life, you have a fight, you have an argument, and you make up. All right there at the table. And I see the wisdom of it all because it creates a family atmosphere, and that's what was going on here. A beautiful family atmosphere. But it wasn't just a family atmosphere. It was a fervent atmosphere. I want you to just look at verse 15. I just read over it, but Jesus, the ESV says, I have earnestly desired. That's just, ooh, that's sort of a weak. It is what it means. The Greek says, with desire, I did desire. And whenever you have the repetition in Greek, that's for emphasis. It's like verily, verily, truly, truly. Listen to me. And so that's why if you have a CSB uh, or if you have a, um, a New King James, it says, I have fervently desired. That's the idea here. When you're about to see a loved one for the last time who's dying, your emotions are mixed. You can't wait to see them, but at the same time, you know it's, it's going to be the last time you're going to see them on earth. Our hearts are filled with sorrow when we know there's no tomorrow. And that was the disciples. This was, these were, if you read John's account, Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Why would he say that? Because they were, that's why. He said he was leaving them. In fact, he had the best illustration he could come up with. He says, look, a woman, when she's in labor, she has sorrow because her time has come. But once the baby is born, her sorrow goes away for the joy that a child has been born in this world. I'm going away, but I'm coming back, and your joy nobody can take away. He had to constantly be doing that throughout this time. But they weren't the only ones emotional. Jesus was emotional, very emotional. His whole life was directed to this hour. And his, his emotions are at an all-time high. It's a fervent atmosphere. He needed his family. And there's just something about family that re-energizes you when you're just wiped out. And he's been wiped out. You know how it is when your emotions are really high, it just drains you, sucks you dry, doesn't it? I preached this thing three times on Sunday morning. You think I'm not exhausted? Yes, I am. We get to the end of the third service, and my wife's got to hug everybody in the church. I'm basically leaning up against the counter, waiting. I mean, no offense, but I, I'm done. I'm done. And there have been times where I've just literally dragged myself. When she had to go ahead of me preparing for the family, which now is like 49 of us. I'm not kidding. It's 47 going on 49. we got to divide it in half just to make it work. Anyway, that's enough of that. But she'll go home, and I'm just, I'm dragging a hoof, just making it to the car. I get in, I get home, I walk in, I see all the kids. It's like somebody just shoots me with a B-12 shot. I'm on. 
It's like I'm energized. My wife tells me to go out and start cooking on the grill. It works. But the family atmosphere gives, gives way to a fervent atmosphere. And all of this is happening. And Jesus is loving it. But it was also a prophetic atmosphere. Verse 16. For I tell you, he says to the disciples, I will not eat it, that is the Passover, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. That would have been the first one, probably, of the four. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. After Jesus would die and rise again, he hung out with the disciples for a month and a half, affirming that he was really alive, 40 days to be exact. But he'd be in heaven a long time before the next Passover came around. He's clearly speaking here of his earthly experience as they, as we, await our heavenly experience with him again on earth. Amen? That's why I love this verse from Matthew's gospel. I love it. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, that's us, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of God. If you know Christ, if you know the Lamb, you're going to be sitting right across from the patriarchs. How cool is that going to be? In a family atmosphere. He's going to tell us later on in verse 19, you got to do this in remembrance of me, right? Remembrance. We, we find that in 1 Corinthians as well. Each time, listen, each time we remember, we rehearse. Every time we remember, we rehearse. Now, I have to confess, my favorite time of the wedding is often not the wedding itself, but the rehearsal. Everybody's chill. Most of the work's been done now. It's more relaxed. Everybody's hair is let down. It's fun. It's not unusual in the middle of the rehearsal. I've seen situations where, you know, we're kind of practicing the vows, and all of a sudden, one of the maid of honor or, maid of honor, or one of the bridesmaid comes in that the, that the bride-to-be hasn't seen for five months. She lives five states away, and they go running into one another's arms. It's beautiful. All happening there at the rehearsal. And then it's off to the rehearsal dinner. And all this is just sort of, we do this, these wedding rehearsals, just to sort of get the, all the kinks out, right? You know, iron out all the wrinkles for the big event. Hey, that's all we're doing here. This is a rehearsal. And hopefully, we're getting the kinks out as we go, amen? Because there's going to come a time when the greater bridegroom is coming. He's coming for us who know him. He's going to bring us to the greatest wedding feast ever. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The supper to end all suppers. And that's the reason why every time we enjoy the Lord's table, we remember in 1 Corinthians, he tells us we do this. We do this until he comes. It's prophetic. Each time we remember, we rehearse. And we've been rehearsing for 2,000 years. You'd think we'd get it by now. Are you working out the kinks in your life? You're going to get another opportunity to do so here in a little bit. And finally, it's a symbolic atmosphere. And now the verses we read so often around the Lord's table, verse 19. 
And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is huper, not gar, the normal conjunction for the Greek, huper, in your place. It is a redemptive word. It's a beautiful word. This is my body, which is given in your place. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, this would be the third cup, which, by the way, was the cup of redemption. To this day, when the Jews uh, go through the Passover, they take the third cup, looking forward to their Messiah, who is to come. We take the cup, looking forward to our Messiah, who has come and is coming again. He takes the cup after they'd eaten the cup, he says, this cup is poured out. And again, he uses the word, huper, in your place. And it's the new covenant in my blood. Now, if you're reading Mark's gospel, Mark adds when he's holding the bread, he says, take this. Take this. Take what? Take the bread. Every Passover had what they called a presider. Jesus would have played that role, usually the father of the family, the one overseeing it. And every food at the table at the setter represented some aspect of the original captivity and exodus from Egypt. As he held the bread, and they do this to this day, they will say, this is the bread of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness, as they remember this. So when Jesus says, he doesn't say that, he says, this is my what? This is my body in this symbolic atmosphere. This is my body. And Keller points out, he's basically saying, Tim Keller points out, that he's saying, this is the bread of my affliction, my suffering that will lead to the ultimate exodus. Now, look, we're talking about symbols here, metaphors, illustrations of spiritual realities, but they're powerful, powerful illustrations. We don't lessen them because they're symbols, Right? They're illustrations. And if you're looking, you can find an illustration just about anywhere, right? Even in a bathroom. Don't look for dignity there, but you can look for an illustration. I mean, just last week, one of the ladies in our cell group told us that uh, she was at the women's conference, and she said she was in a dilemma. She goes, I don't know. She said, Pastor Pat, I don't know what I should have done. I said, well, what happened? And this was in our cell group. She said, well, I was, in, I was in the women's bathroom and with a bunch of other... Why do, why do lots... Ah, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> anyway, she's standing there waiting. All the stalls are being used. And, and, uh, and there's a mother and a daughter next to her, and they're talking away. And the mother says, well, you know, all denominations are the same. And she looked right at me, she said, when she said it. And I didn't know what to say. What could I have said? And everybody in the cell group is just looking at me. I said, well, you know, you could have pointed to the stalls and said, well, look at those stalls. They all look the same, don't they? What if you go into one and I go into the other and mine has toilet paper and yours doesn't? Are they both the same? <laughs> One's going to meet your need. The other isn't. <laughs> now, Listen. Every church or church so-called celebrates the Lord's table, celebrates communion, has bread and juice or wine and bread or whatever, some, something. 
but they don't all believe the same. There are churches that believe that if you take these elements, something miraculous, something mysterious, something sacramental occurs, whereby they become the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. That's not what's going on here. These are symbolic elements. We're not lessening it. This is a very precious, a very holy time, but they don't suddenly turn into Jesus. That's ridiculous. Suddenly I'm trusting the elements and not the one by whom they represent. Right? Verse 20 says, now after they have eaten. Eaten what? The lamb. That's what. Interestingly, Nowhere in any of the four gospel accounts is there the mention of the main course. There's no mention of the lamb in any of those accounts. Here's why. Here's what Keller says. There was no lamb mentioned on the table because its fulfillment was at the table. What was Jesus saying? What was he saying to his disciples? What's he saying to you? What's he saying to me? He was saying, I'm the main course. You must consume me. That's what he was saying. He said as much in John's gospel when he said these words here. He said, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Have you ever read that? On a gravestone in Clarion, Iowa, is a testimony of a woman who died in her youth. Her favorite verse was John 1:12, and it's etched right on the tombstone. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. The word receive literally means, watch this, to take in. It means to take in. You might say that she took in before she took off. (laughs) Look, it wasn't enough that Jesus became God's lamb. The lamb... had to be consumed and has to be consumed by you, by me, if you want to have a relationship with the living God. You consume him by faith, true belief. Now, I referenced Exodus chapter 12 earlier, and I want you to take a good look at it here. Here's what it, just look at it. It's up there on the screen. God says to the congregation, I want you to stay with me here. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take, say it, a lamb. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. I want you to look at this for a little bit. It'll stay up there. Because every single person in this room, every single one of us, can lay claim to one of those lambs. 
every one of us. To some of you right now, Jesus is a lamb. He's a way amidst many ways. He's one religion like any other religion. All religions lead to God. Amen? No. You would be wrong. The ones I'm most concerned about in this room are those of you who would see Jesus not as just a lamb, not as just one of many ways to God. You'd see him as the lamb, the way, the truth, the life. Nobody gets to God except through him. Amen. Your theology is spot on. You know the way to heaven. There's only one way. It's through Jesus. It's just not personal with you. It's all here and not here. The real question is, and you see it coming, don't you? Is he your lamb? As many as received him, taken him in, consumed by faith, to them God gives the right to become the children of God. And I appeal to every one of you to consider what lamb do you relate to? Is he, is he really your lamb? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time we could spend in your word. We thank you for the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you that he wasn't just a lamb, and he was more than the lamb, though he was certainly the lamb of God. I pray, Lord, that he would be the personal lamb of God to those in this room to whom he is not. Some of you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. You've got him in your head, but he's not in your heart. If that would be you right now, dear friend, you would say, that's just me. I'm such a phony. I've been hiding behind my sins I know the truth. I've heard this from other places, other churches, but it's never been real to me. And today, God has made it real. Lord, this is your prayer. Cry out to God right now. God, I am a sinner. I am lost. I am hellbound. And I want the one who took my place, the Lord Jesus, to come into my life and be my savior and take my sin away. Can you pray that from your heart? Would you make a lamb, the lamb, your lamb? right now. And Lord, for those of us who know him personally, may we worship you in spirit and truth and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.